I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, <clears throat> chapter 41. Isaiah 41. In my preparation for this uh, discussion, I've had a strange sense that I want to do something in the book of Isaiah, I think next summer, uh, just looking at some of the amazing promises that God has given to us to sustain us and strengthen us in this walk which has great joy, but if we're honest, we all go through seasons of fear. Uh, times when things tend to freak us out, our capacity to handle circumstances seems incredibly inadequate. And uh, while we think that's bad news, it's actually really good news. And yet we resist, and we try to fight on in our own flesh. This morning, I want to encourage you, as we have sung to face your fears, uh, to face the fears that come along in the seasons of life through various circumstances and settings. And as I thought this morning in my office, I thought of various people in our church who face fear. I thought of the world that I live in. I thought of the fact that we live in a time of global uncertainty when relationships internationally are strained, at best strained. And while there is no uh, alarming, enormous battle taking place right now, the tensions are indeed high. I think of Syria, I think of Egypt, I think of Israel, I think of Afghanistan, I think of Pakistan, I think of the sabering rattle, the saber, saber rattling that's taking place in Russia, I think of Iran with its nuclear threats, I think of the pretty much the entire northern portion of the African continent in utter and complete turmoil. Most people would not even think of going there. And that's the world I live in. Instability is in many ways normative. And it's interesting when I look back. Think of what Jesus says in Matthew 24 and 25. What does he say? In this world you will have trouble. And in this world there will be wars and rumors of wars. That will be characteristic of the age in which we live. And because we live in those kinds of circumstances, we tend to have the waves of fear and anxiety roll over our lives. We're affected by it. We're affected by it more than we should be as God's children because we tend to take this, the, the stance of resignation. I won't let this destroy me. But I think the text that we're going to look at this morning calls us to something other than mere resignation. Here I stand bloody but unbowed, as Vindictus says in the poem. Okay, not, that's not the Christian stance. God doesn't want the world to look at us and say, look, look at all they've gone through and they're still standing. I mean, he wants us to do that, but he wants more. But fear tends to cripple or break the legs of the church. We allow fear to overwhelm us and to drive us into what I want to call kind of a position of being static. Resignation. Life is hard, but I'm still standing. I thank God has a, a, a much greater joy in life for you than that. We live in a world where there is extreme financial uncertainty also, don't we? I, I remember, how many of you remember Monday, October 17th in 1987? How many of you remember that day? It was called Black Monday. You know what happened in that day? I remember, I was in seminary. First time I'd ever decided to start to try to save for retirement, which is kind of stupid while I was paying my seminary bills, but... I tried. Looked at the newspaper the next morning. 
the Dow Jones Industrial Average had dropped more than it ever had in history. The result was fear and panic. You could watch video clips of people on Wall Street standing on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, staring off into where? And looking to who? And why are they staring and looking? Because they're looking for a place where there is stability, a place where they can be at peace in the midst of the storm that is swirling around them. And you notice this regularly, okay? Whenever the market crashes, which it has and it will again, okay? You see people with their hands held in their head, or their heads held in their head. It's hard to hold your hands in your head, but hand, you know, hands holding their head. Just, you, just that look of dejection. Why? Fear. Fear. Crippling fear. I looked at the newspaper locally, Allentown, two shootings on Friday night. Last night in Chicago, 19 shootings last night. That's the world I live in. That's the world I'm raising my kids in. That's the world my grandchildren, Lord willing, will be raised in. Add to that the fear for many of the loss of jobs, a lack of security, thoughts about the safety of our children. The fact is this. God did not save you out of the trouble of this world. He saved you in it. And all the troubles that everybody out there faces, you face. But you face it with an ally. The reason the nation of Israel can stand boldly where they stand today is not because of their size. It's not why they're bold. And I'm not, I'm not making a political statement here. Okay, please understand. I'm just saying the reason that they're bold is because of who stands behind them. All right, the full force of the United States of America stands behind that little country that's smaller than the state of New Jersey. Therefore, what do they have? They have an incredible courage in the face of many nations that repeatedly say, we would like to thrust them into the Mediterranean Sea and wipe them out, annihilate, remove any remembrance of them. Why do they stand so boldly? Because of who stands behind them. Why should Christians stand boldly? Why does God say to you, stand and having done everything, stand, in the end, be found standing. Why does he say that? Is he torturing you? Is he trying to get you to do something that's impossible? Okay, that's a trick question. <laughs> yes and no. It depends. It depends if you're willing to be still and know that he is God. To rest, as in, rest in his authority, to rest in his power, and to face your fears with a boldness and confidence, because you know who stands behind you. You know who stands under you. You know who stands around you. And it, it should be truly this. It should be inexplicable. The level of peace, the degree of joy that Christians have. Why? Because you, folks, please understand this. You live in the same world that they live in, that people that do not know Christ, you live in the same world. And when you live with a joy that is not deriving from circumstances, people will begin to want to know what is it that makes you different? What causes your heart to tick? What puts a smile on your face? And here's the answer. We see things differently. Okay, I went out of my house this morning early enough that the sky was pitch black. Okay, it was, and the light pollution was low because of the time of day. It was stunning. It was stunning. When you look at that, do you do what God says? Do you look at His handiwork? Do you find in your heart some degree of confidence that the God who put all of that in place and sent this world going around the sun at 25,000 miles an hour while spinning at 1,000 miles an hour on its axis? Do you trust the God who did that with your life? 
with your problems. Okay, what do I want? I want to look up at the sky in a morning like this and say, God, that is awesome. And if you control that, my problems are nothing to you. But I lose that perspective. And so do you. And so regularly in Scripture, what do you find? You find God hammering at this theme over and over. Why does he do it? Because in your life, life is hammering the theme of fear into your head. The evil one wants you to be paralyzed by fear. So he roars through the circumstances of your life. He amplifies and magnifies those things. So you will become a Christian who settles for resignation. Resigned to stand, but not really going anywhere, not really doing anything. And I want to challenge you this morning. All right, I'm going to tell you this, okay? This is an area where I struggle. Okay? I didn't grow up a highly gifted person, okay? I know what it is to fight for things. I know what it is to go to college at 21 years old. Because you did what God wanted you to do, but thinking... I have never academically proven that I could do this, ever. My senior year of high school, I worked from 12 noon until 12 at night. Every day, principal called my parents, your son sleeps through classes. Mom would say, talk to his dad. I didn't even know what I could do academically. I went to college in absolute fear. I didn't even know if I could handle it. I remember going through my first speech class, which is where you practice getting up in front of people and talking. I did fine through the speech. I sat down afterwards in my shirt. I mean, like instantaneously when I was done, I was complete covered in sweat with a white shirt on without a T-shirt on. It just stuck to my skin. See my color of my skin through it. Okay, and I was like, I was horrified. I sat there embarrassed. And full of fear. Full of it. Thinking, God, I, it's going to look weird. He gets up priests and he sits down and he just takes a shower in his own chair. This <laughs> isn't a way to make me feel confident about my future. Second year of college, I failed the uh, English, I was going to say equivalency test. What is that test called? What's that test called? What is it? Proficiency test. That's the word. Okay, failed it. You're not surprised, right, Diana? <laughs> then I was like, I knew that. Okay, I have to go back and take, because of spelling, okay, which is my Achilles heel. Thank God for spell checkers now. Make you look smarter than you are. I had to go back and do that. Okay, I know what it is to be afraid. Truth is, most of us do. Most of, most of us know what it is to fear that I'm not going to make it. I'm not... How am I going to look? And it's all typically what? It's about us. And when God addresses fear, you know what he does? He ignores us. And he very graciously attracts us to his power and to his capacities. The fact is that we all have seasons of stress and fear. And this morning, I want to submit this text to you as a rhema, as Ephesians 6 says, verse 12, take up the sword of the spirit. And the idea is not the entire word of God. It's take up for the moment a word from the Spirit. And with it, defeat the lies of the devil. Because I'm not going to give you this morning every word you need on fear, but I will give you a word. So do not fear. For I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you. 
by my righteous right hand. I mean, memorize that verse. Let that flow through your mind at night. That verse runs through my mind when I'm facing fear. It's a sword that I take to, to go after uh, the lies of the evil one <clears throat> so that I don't stand in a place of resignation. Don't move, don't move. Don't let it take you out. No, move forward. Move forward. Charge. Do the things that God has called you to do. Face the fears that you have in the power of God. So my desire is to challenge you and to encourage you. It's a verse that contains two commands that I think we can boil down to one statement. And then it gives us reasons to obey. But it does all of that in a very unique context. The context is verses 1 through 9. And let me just read through this with you. Isaiah 41. Be silent before, and I'll just stop and, and kind of ad lib here. Be silent before me, O you islands. Isn't that amazing? God says, hey, just, why? Because the world was in turmoil. Isaiah is writing about a future time when Assyria will have already run through the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes, and taken them into captivity, 722. Isaiah writes at about 740 B.C., 20 years before the event. In 722, Assyria will come in and wipe out the northern tribes of Israel. In 586, uh, 605, 597 to 586, Babylon will come in in three overwhelming waves and will utterly wipe out and destroy the two southern tribes. And Isaiah now, in light of those fears generated by those circumstances, points forward 70 years from the last event to a time when God will say to his people, Israel, go back. Go back to Israel. Build the temple. Build the city. Why, why does he write this? Because in the midst of that challenge, that command, that directive, what's the response of the Israelites going to be? We get chased out of there by Assyria. We get chased out of there by Babylon. And now Persia's on the rise. And King Cyrus is going to do what? What is God saying? King Cyrus, God says this. He says, I'm going to raise up a king from the east. He's going to send you back to Israel. Everyone reading that was in total disbelief. In fact, everyone reading it was in disbelief that Assyria would come and that Babylon would come and do what they were going to do. But it had happened. And when it happened, God was saying to his people, when it happens, do not fear. Because it will be overwhelming. It will drive you into despair. It will paralyze you. The word from God in response to this will be clear. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. So what is it? The first verse is this. It's God calling the nations that he controls like rivers, Proverbs says, right? Like rivers of water. He controls things that are so much bigger than your circumstances. That's what he wants to say. He can call the nations into court. And it's not like the U.N., Okay, ineffective, soft, weak, anemic. It's God. And he calls them into court. And the idea is this. He has called them in for judgment. And he will give righteous verdicts. So the first thought is that the God who is speaking is the judge of all the earth. Verses 2 and 3. Who has stirred up one from the east? And the historical setting is this. It's Cyrus, king of Persia, after the rise of Babylon and its fall or the rise of Assyria, I'm sorry, in its fall, rise of Babylon in its fall, then God raises up the, what will become the Medo-Persian Empire that precedes the Roman Empire. Gets you in a historical framework. I love this. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? Who? God calling a pagan king into what? His service. 
That's how sovereign God is. Okay, He controls the king's heart. It's in His hand. He is not only the, ju- the God who is the judge, He is the God who controls. This prophecy will be fulfilled 230 years after its writing. Okay, there is no king of Persia. There is no Cyrus yet. But God is speaking of what? The future. How can he do that? He controls it. So when Luke flipped his car over four times the other day, God didn't in heaven say, wow, I can't believe that happened. Right? He knows what's going to happen. He controls what's going to happen. He protects those who he designs to protect for his glory. Here's what it says. He, God, hands nations over to him. God subdues kings before Cyrus. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this? Verse 4 says, who has carried it through, calling forth the generation from the beginning, meaning speaking of what Cyrus is going to do before it. Who does that? Who does that? I don't know any earthly king that does that. But I know a God who does that. So he is a God who controls. He is the God who says to us in Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God above politics, the message says, above everything. Never taken by surprise. And what does he say to you? He says, don't be afraid. I call all kings into judgment. I control all circumstances, four through seven. I am the God who creates everything. The islands, verse five says, it says, have seen it and fear the ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. Each helps the other and says to his brother, be strong. Okay, why? Well, there's turmoil. So what are the people in the world saying? Come on, come on, let's bound together. It's very much like what happens at the Tower of Babel. Right? Let's get together and be strong. It's like what happens at the United Nations. Let's get together. If we get together, we'll have more peace and be strong. Really? Is that what's happened in the world you and I live in? And this is what they're thinking. Let's get together. Verse 7. Because there are people that worship idols, what do they do? The craftsman encourages the goldsmith. Come on, get some gold together. He who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one that strikes the anvil. He says to the welding, it is good. What have they just done? They just made a god. Okay, they carved out an image, they hammered out gold metal uh, skin, and now they have attached it to the idol, and then they stand back, but what do they have to do? One says, hey, you better put a nail on his foot, because if you don't, what's going to happen? He's going to topple over, and if he does, that will be completely embarrassing. Right, so they make it, and they step back and say, it's good. Oh, quick, affix that to the board, because if you don't, it'll fall over. And what do they do? They trust that. They find comfort in that. He says to the welding, it's good. He nails it down so that it won't topple. And then verse 8 does a categoric leap to another topic. So here's the world. All this is is happening. God's in control. One day he will call everything to court. People are trying to get alliances, build them around false gods. But they have to nail the God to the board so it won't topple. That's the way he ends. Verse 8, what does he do? He says, but you. That is in contrast. You, Israel, in contrast to them. My servant, Jacob, named for the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, whom I have chosen. You descendants of Abraham, my friend. And notice what he says. And this is God. What is God doing? He's saying to Israel, this is who I am. This is why you should trust me. I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners, I called you. I said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. 
and have not rejected you. I won't throw you away. So, do you see? So the first seven verses set up a picture of basically the world that God controls. It gives us a picture of the way that people operate apart from God. And then it transitions from that false way of thinking, that weak way of thinking, into a clear view of God. Okay, and this is where I want you to focus your attention this morning. Okay, we look at the God who judges, who controls, who created, and who chose Israel. In contrast, okay, but I chose you. And then he goes in to give them two commands, followed by five reasons for why they should obey that command. Okay, so here's the picture of God. Here's two commands that that God gives you. Here's five reasons why you should be responsive to that directive. Okay, so let's look at the two commands. They're very, very simple. The two commands are don't fear and don't be dismayed. Okay, I think we could bind these together and say it is a call to do this in the terms of an active response. Okay, it is a call to be courageous. Courage is not about resignation. Courage is about an active desire to take steps forward in the work that God has called me to do. Okay, God is saying to his people, in light of this, the fact that I'm in control and that you don't serve a God who's nailed down, you serve a God who lives in the heavens. In light of that, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. One is the idea of fear that paralyzes and that freezes us. It's a call to take courage. Don't be afraid. Second statement, don't be dismayed. The idea of this is don't look about anxiously. Ever been in a circumstance where you were afraid and you started to look about trying to figure out what am I going to, how am I going to respond to this? What am I going to do in light of this? Okay, I'm going to tell you this. When I was in college and sat down after that first speech and speech class, you know what I was doing? I was looking around saying, how do I get out of this? How do I go home to mommy and daddy? Okay, that's what I wanted. I don't want to live with embarrassment. I want it out. And God said, you're not allowed. You know the verse he gave me? Philippians 1 and verse 6. Be confident of this very thing. That he who has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Christ. And that's a sword I've taken over the years to defeat the lies of the evil one. Who comes to what? Not to encourage you. He comes to destroy you. He comes to steal your courage. He comes to steal your boldness. He comes to steal your desire to do what God has called you to do. You have to have the courage to say, you know what? I'm not taking it anymore. I'm going to take a sword of the Spirit and defeat the lie of fear and the paralysis that it brings. So the commands are very simple and I think relatively clear. Don't fear. Don't look around anxiously. It's, it's, it's the idea of the shock of trauma. When I was coming home from my wife's house when I was dating her one night, it was later than it should have been, and I remember coming up to the on-ramp for Route 309. I remember looking across the road, and I saw a body hanging out of a car. Obviously, there had been a head-on collision very late at night. Frost had already settled in the cars. There was no one there. I remember going over to the one car where the, both people were still inside, a girl with a white fur coat on, streaming down with blood. And you know what she was doing? She was just looking around. She had no idea of what had happened. You know, if she was drunk, I have no idea. When the police got there, I got on my way home. But you know what I found? I found shock, traumatic shock that caused people just to be like, what happened? You know what God says to us? He says, don't be like that. When circumstances come that, sh- and will this happen to us? Yes. You get that phone call. You get that email message. You get that text that shocks you. And what's my first response? My first response is to, that's the idea. And what should we do? 
God says, look up here. Do not fear. I'm right there. I'm right by your side. So the command is very simple. Be courageous. Take an aggressive stance in the difficult circumstances of life. Why should I do that? That's the question. Because you can get kind of comfortable in fear. Because you know what fear does? Fear backs you off from attempting to do anything that you could fail at. It just backs you up. It causes you to never face the challenges that God wants you to face. And as a result of that, what happens? You miss out on the joys that God wants you to experience. Why? Satan's got you. And I offer you this verse. So do not fear. And do not be, don't look around. Look to God. Seek first His desires and His plans and His will for your life. Five reasons that emerge from this text then that in many ways are in a sense relational statements. Five assurances. Five grounding stones that you can build a life of faith upon. Let me just go through these real quick in verse 10. So do not fear. Four. Reason, I am with you. Which is what? It's a promise of proximity. Okay? I am with you. All right? Remember when my girls were young? Sometimes you'd hear them crying in the middle of the night. Or sometimes my wife would hear them and then wake me up. You go into the room and what's your, what's your parental posture towards your child? Man, I hope it's not. Why are you crying? What are you afraid of? <laughs> no, what do you do? You come near to them and you say, honey, it's dad. Everything's fine. Now, you can bark it from your bed if you want to. Okay? Not real helpful. Okay? Because they think the person's under their bed. Okay? Remember having that fear as a kid? Like, don't put, you wake up and your hands down below the bed. You're like, oh. Right? Because you get those weird fears. I saw stuff move, move in my closet my entire life. Okay? Just remember that. All right? What does God say? He said, no, no. I understand. And it, God doesn't, it's not, it's James 1. Remember when God says, hey, if you lack wisdom in a circumstance and you're afraid, ask me. And I'll be there in a moment. Right? He's not going to up, up, up upside down. There. He says, no, he upraises not and he gives a word for the moment. That's God. What does he say? I'm with you. He said, Bobby, don't be afraid. I'm in that circumstance. I'm not surprised. Right? I mean, I'm with you. Snuggle up in bed beside her doors and never let on say, it's daddy. Did I ever sneak in and scare him? Yes. I have to confess. <laughs> and then I'd say, ah, don't be afraid. It's me. Okay. <laughs> All right. What? So there's fear. What, what does God say? God says, the first thing I want you to know is I am there. I am right there. Look at me. Focus on me. Don't be afraid. Second thing this text says, and by the way, let me just say this. James 4, 8 is the verse that comes to mind. When you're in a season of fear and God seems distant, what does he say? Don't stay out there. James 4, 8, draw near to God and what will he do? Right? The message says he be, he'll be there in a heartbeat. That's so comforting. Okay, in the midst of your fears, he says, I will be right there. They say, you get a phone call from someone in need, and you can talk to them on the phone. You know what sometimes you've got to say? I'm not talking to them on the phone. I will be right there. Why? Because your personal presence is more meaningful than your words. Why? You're too afraid to hear. 
You're traumatized by the circumstance. God says to us, he says, I am with you. Second thing he says is this. And this you've you got to think about this. I am with you. I am your God. What text does that remind you of in the Psalms? I am your God. Here's the passage that came to my mind was Psalm 23. So you find this verse will connect you into all kinds of other passages of Scripture. Okay? Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. Okay, which is what? It's proximity. A shepherd stays with the sheep. That's what he does by definition. And the purpose of his presence is to bring encouragement and comfort. So that, so that, even a later verse says, if I am walking through the valley of the shadow of death, what happens? I will fear no evil. I won't be afraid. Where? At the doorstep of death. Why? Because you are with me. Okay, it's, it's a precious proximity. It's an encouraging proximity. So God says, don't fear. I am with you. Don't fear. I am your God. What is that? It is a promise of relationship. And this text, I think, kind of hammers on that in the earlier verses, 7 through 8. What's it saying? It's saying God has chosen you. He could have chosen others. He didn't. He chose you. He chose you to be with him of all the nations of the earth. He's trying to stun Israel with the glory of his grace that chose them. So that they would realize what? You're precious to him. He selected you. This is the privilege of every adoptive parent to say to their child, I chose you. God didn't put you into our family that way. He brought you into our family this way. We selected you and have chosen to pour our love out on you. That's what God does with every sinner. Next phrase, he says this, I will strengthen you. I will give you strength. What is that? It's the promise of power. It's the promise of ability for Tim Hoff to get up and speak publicly when in college he was petrified dreadfully afraid it still happens to me there's a sense in which i'm thankful to god for that okay no it's you can't do that but i join with me and we'll begin to do things together that you can never do on your own i will strengthen you and isn't this what jesus says to his disciples as he launches them into public ministry they're saying jesus we can't do this in the garden they're demonstrating perpetual and consistent failure what does he do? He breathes upon them the gift of the Spirit of God. And what happens? They are transformed by God strengthening them. Okay? So the, the hint from the Old Testament, moving into the New Testament from this text, the connection between the old book and the new book is what? It's the power of the Spirit that comes internally to strengthen the children of God so that we can do the work that he's called us to do. So he says, don't fear. I will give you strength, the promise of power from where from inside i will take up resonance and not be with you i will be in you jesus says to the church and then he says i will help you this is the promise of assistance okay i will be right beside you helping you to do the things that i've called you to do some of which you can't do without me and so i will be there to to direct you to assist you to give you those little hints and helps that you need along the way I thought of the text in the book of 2 Kings, King Hezekiah. 
who is facing the armies of the king of Assyria prior to God's designed plan for the conquering of the northern tribes. Okay? Sennacherib comes. He sends letters. He has letters read out uh, to the king, Hezekiah of Israel. And Hezekiah is overwhelmed with fear. What does he do? Here's what the Bible says he does. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. So Sennacherib sends a letter to King Hezekiah. It's not a thank you note. It's not a note of encouragement. It is, we're going to come and kill you. And if you try to falsely pump up the hopes of your people Israel, you will pay a more serious price. It'd be better to surrender and have less loss of life. Intimidation. To cause what? Fear. To cause what? A spirit of resignation and paralysis. So that they become an easy target and easy prey. Hezekiah reads the letter. And it does not say that's all that he does. What does he do? He takes an active posture before the God who is with him. Here's what it says. He went up into the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. You ever done that? You ever had a circumstance come into your life where you're like, God, that person's right if I'm alone. I'm done. But here's what they're saying. That's what Hezekiah does. He prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 8. You're in charge of everything. You're not an idol. You're the living God. We don't bow down before an image of you. We come into your presence and we lay the letter out and we talk to you. And we don't have to be afraid of bumping you and you falling over. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And he gives praise for who God is. He says, give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Surat, that Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. You see what Sennacherib does? He says, God, they're attacking me. You said you would be with me, that you would be mine, and that you would protect me. And now I'm counting on you to do that. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown down their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that the kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the earth, will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. And I love this. This is God's now response. Here's the threat. Here's the truth. He will not enter this city. He will not shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with the shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and I will save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Isn't that powerful? What does the Nacarib feel when he reads the letter? He feels fear. How does he respond to the fear? He doesn't drift into paralysis. He takes the letter and he puts it before God and says, this is what they're saying. Help us, God. Help us. And God comes. And very glorious works in this situation. The last thing that Isaiah 41.10 says is that God says, I will uphold you, which is the promise of support. You ever feel like the circumstances of life are just so, if you will, overwhelming that they weigh you down? And, and I don't know if you ever get this way, but sometimes I get this way. Sometimes I feel like physically I'm walking in mud. Okay, because there's just so much on your mind. You say, oh, how you doing? Ah, I feel a little heavy. <laughs> well, did you gain weight? No, I didn't gain weight. I just, I feel like I have, there's so much on me that as I try to walk, I feel like I'm in mud. You ever had that experience? What is God saying here? He's saying, I will take you by the hand. 
I will uphold you. I will enable you to do things that you can't do. And sometimes God is pulling us through as we hold on to him. What, simply the grip of faith. He's saying, God, I can't do this. I can't face this circumstance. But I know you want me to. And so I'm going to hold on to you. It's the promise of support to keep you steady, to keep a firm grip on you. Because what happens? There are times that you and I are not strong enough to hang on to Christ, right? Is that not true? But he is always strong enough to hold on to you. And that's his promise here. I will help you. I will uphold you. The text that came to mind as I thought of this was Peter. Jesus comes walking on the water in the middle of the night. The disciples are facing a storm that they can't defeat. They're experiencing, uh, if you will, loss and fatigue in the, in the context of this pursuit of trying to get to the other side of the lake. And what happens? Jesus comes walking by. Peter sees Jesus, and what did Peter say? Can I do that? And as he fixes his eyes on Jesus, what does Jesus say? Sure. Peter gets out of the boat, and what does he do? He does what he can't do. And what I love is he's doing something none of the other disciples could do. And they're probably all thinking, I should have done that. But then what does it say? Seeing the waves, Peter began to sink. And what does Jesus do? Ah, gotcha. You doubted. <laughs> no. You know what he does? He reaches out and takes hold of Peter in the midst of his fear and rescues him from it. Folks, these are the promises of God. I will uphold you. I will strengthen you. I will come to you. I will be with you. I am your God. I am pledged to that end. All of these statements give us a view of our relationship with God who is over us and above us and amazing. Why do we fear? And when is the first time that fear is mentioned in the word of God? You ever think about that? When's the first time that fear is mentioned in the Bible? Okay, I'll take you back to Genesis 3 in your minds. Okay? You know why we fear? Because we know we have sin in our lives. And you know why sometimes we stay away from God? Because we fear the consequences of our sin. You know what God wants to do? By the power of His grace, He wants to defeat that sin. See, in the first garden... Adam and Eve were in, in, involved in and enjoying a wonderful relationship with God. Sin enters into the picture. When God comes in the cool of the day, they hide themselves. God comes and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? And he's, it wouldn't even be fair to play hide and go seek with God, right? Because where are you going to go? He says, Adam, where are you? And it's really, it's kind of this, what are you doing? And what does Adam say? He says, we hid ourselves because we were what? We were afraid. We knew we were naked and we were ashamed and we were afraid. Why? The holiness of God. The justice of God. Go to the next garden. The Garden of Eden. When Jesus faced the full consequence of the sin that Adam committed and that you and I assumed. Okay? What was the response of Jesus to the task before him in the garden? What was it? Was it all? I'm good with this. No problem. I'm just going to go into this with God's help. I'm going to do this. Now, what is his response? It's fear. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The disciples, Mark says, 
looked at him and he was troubled. He was shaken to the very core of his being. By what? By the thought of taking on the consequence of my sin and yours. And he faced that fear. And what did he do do with it? He defeated it by the power of the resurrection. Now see, folks, look, all of us face fear. We all do. And when we do, we need to do this. We need to remember who God is, and we need to remember the promises that he's made to us, that he is with us, that he is for us, that he will uphold us, that he will strengthen us, that he's related to us through the shed blood of Christ. And if this morning you come and you have this fear of sin and its consequence, which most people that are sinners do, if you've thought about it, you need to realize that that fear of your sin has been dealt with and taken care of through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And that if you will acknowledge your sin, He in His rich grace will forgive you and make you His and strengthen you and indwell you and uphold you and help you to live the life that you can't live on your own. So this morning, I will call you to this challenge. Take up the sword of the Spirit this morning. This sword, Isaiah 41.10. And go from here this morning saying, God, I have things that have paralyzed me. I have been living in certain areas of my life in resignation, in fear. Let me be an aggressive Christian. Let me be a soldier for the cross work of Christ who is not sitting back, resigned to the fact that life is hard. But who is moving forward, realizing that life is hard. But in the power of God, doing things that we, that I cannot do in my own Verse 11 concludes this text by saying this. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you, God, will become as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, God says, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Do not be afraid. And I love this next statement. Oh, worm Jacob. Why does he say that? Don't be afraid, O worm Jacob. What does he say? Just recognize that compared to the circumstances you're facing, you are weak, you're insignificant. But with me, you can face giants. How can a worm face a giant? Well, in the power of God. That's the, the picture that he's painting. And then he says, Oh, little Israel, I myself will help you. But folks, what happens? I don't trust God and I don't walk in victory when I get my eyes on me. God wants me to get my eyes on him and my smallness, my inadequacy will be defeated by the power of God in terms of what it can't accomplish. God will begin to do through us amazing things. If we would fight the good fight and take up this sword to defeat fear and the paralysis that it brings into our lives. God says, oh, little Israel, don't be afraid. For I myself will help you, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Let's pray this morning. Father, help us.